Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, uh, we're talking about forgiveness today, and uh, I was hoping that this would be a nice, sweet sermon on forgiveness. It turns out it's not. And uh, in fact, um, I don't know that I've got this one figured out yet, so uh, maybe we could just talk about it and uh, we could come to some conclusions. I'm not sure where all the lines are in this process. So I'm trying to figure it out and uh, figure why not just talk about it publicly. What could go wrong? <laughs> so uh, I get uh, the opportunity to get away. Uh, a few years ago, I accepted that uh, I needed to have some times of solitude. So about once a year, I try to get away for a week of solitude. And uh, there's some gracious folks. and. I get to go to Coronado Island. They have a condo down there, and it's, it's a, I'm not exactly alone alone. I'm just kind of alone. You understand what I'm saying? And down at Coronado Island, I don't know how many of you have ever been down there, but uh, there's a lot going on down there. That's where the seals train, uh, you know, the Navy seals, if you're not, not the animals. <laughs> That's at SeaWorld. That's a different place. So on any given time that you're there, you know, there's all, you know, you might wake up in the morning and, you know, you're hearing this cadence call and you look down and there are, you know, hundreds of people swimming in the ocean or running down the beach or whatever. I don't ever participate at any of that physical activity. But, but a few years ago, I, I was walking down the beach one evening and there was a commotion up ahead and uh, it turns out that the seals were landing. They, they were doing a, a beach landing right behind the Hotel Del Coronado. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's some rocks there. And uh, they were coming up in their zodiacs out of the ocean, and then they were coming up to that rock formation, and then they had to get out of their zodiacs and lift their zodiacs onto their shoulders and climb over the rocks. And as they climbed over the rocks, then they had to throw the zodiac down, and then they had to go through these push-up things, and there were drill sergeants screaming at them. It was a all clean language. It was all rated G. <laughs> And uh, just, you know, just this intense moment. And so it's kind of this funny situation because as they sort of started doing what they were doing, then people on the terrace having their dinner and drinks began to drift over to the scene. So imagine, you know, you have seals coming out of the water, carrying, they're sweating, they're screaming. And then you have, you know, like men in their sailboat shorts. You understand what I'm saying? You get the imagery? Tommy Bahama shirts, you know. And they sort of had drifted out with their drinks, so you had this kind of group of people kind of watching. And they had this particular moment where, you know, these guys had come over the rock, and they were carrying their Zodiac, and they threw it down on the ground, and and they were doing, they had to, you know, push up on the edge of the Zodiac, and they had to do so many in a row, and the drill sergeant was screaming, and he said, this guy right here, he didn't get it right. All of you come back, you know, and they're all like cussing, and ah. And there's a guy standing there with his drink, and he literally says, freedom isn't free, boys. And they killed him. 
That part's not true, but... But I, that image is just stuck in my head. I mean, these guys that are working so hard and they're fighting for, you know, to be trained, to be equipped. And then you got somebody that drifted out of the bar <laughs> in their sailboat shorts, their deck shoes. <laughs> and I think that must be how we look a lot of the time. I mean, how many of us are those people in our culture, in our world, in our family system? Freedom and free, boys. <laughs> Amen? Because if we're going to talk about forgiveness, we probably should talk about judgment. Because these two things are kind of two sides of the same coin. It's hard to be forgiving if you're judging. And what would make us think we should drift out into situations and circumstances that aren't ours to address, that don't belong to us, that we have no stake in, and we should express an opinion? We should remind others of their responsibility, our mental picture, or anything else. A few years ago, we had a period of time in our city of great upheaval, uh, sort of centered around Rodney King. And if you remember during all of that as it was unfolding, he, in one interview, looked at the camera and said, why can't we all just get along? Well, there's a reason we can't all just get along, isn't there? I mean, at the moment that he asked that question, you could talk about issues of social justice, you could talk about uh, the, the race tensions with our own city, you could talk about all kinds of reasons why we're having a hard time getting along. But there's an underlying question to that, and that is this, why don't we want to get along? Now, I know philosophically everybody here wants to get along. It's just that at a practical level, we don't always want to. Sometimes we want to win. A lot of time we want to win. A lot of time we want to be right. A lot of time we want to be the people who are in the know, who get it, while other people don't get it. It suits us. It suits us to be smart. It suits us to have it figured out. And when we think about why we don't all get along or why we don't want to all get along, part of that reality is we have very different perspectives based on where we were born, who our parents were, what happened to us while we were growing up, what church we were raised in, or if we were raised in church at all. Why can't we all get along? Well, we don't all see the same things or think the same things or feel the same things or believe the same things are right. And even if we believed, all believed that the same things were right, we wouldn't agree on how to get there. Amen? In fact, I believe that most people in the culture and the world want the same things. We just don't all agree how to get them. And because we don't agree on how to get them, we fight a lot as a culture. That probably happens in our own families. It's not just a big philosophical conversation. So I'm struggling today with exactly where the lines are. I know we're believers, and I know that we're to be the people who are, you know, believing in the Word and supporting the Word and standing up for the Word, and I get all of that. But I'm also instructed by that word to not be judgmental of others. And so I don't know how it all fits together. Maybe it's like this. Maybe at some level this isn't a great theology. But maybe it's a personal ambition that Christ has laid on us all. That, that maybe up here there's a place in which we believe in truth and we support it as best we understand from God's word. But at an individual level, maybe God's inviting us to look at others less. To talk about others less, to assess others less, that maybe it's a full-time job just for us 
to attempt to become Christ-like followers. And so we're thinking about what that looks like and what that means in some imperfect way this morning. I shared with you last week that, that as Paul writes the letter that we know as the book of Romans, he's writing to a church that's going through uh, an incredible amount of upheaval. And uh, if you weren't with us last week, I just highlighted the fact that, that uh, the church formed among uh, some believing Jews and Gentiles. So it was a mixed ethnic group, uh, very different in their makeup and belief structures and where they come from. The Gentiles largely having a Greek perspective, a Hellenistic culture, believing in paganism, God's goddesses. There's always room for one more. Uh, and the Jews believing in a, in a radically monotheistic idea of God and how, how God is worshipped. Very legalistic, very structured, lots of rules, 618 uh, rules by the time uh, the first century rolls around. The Ten Commandments have been exploded into 618 laws. And, uh, and so we have this sort of thing, but they, they sort of start together. They, they are convert together to this belief in Jesus Christ and in his teachings, and they're talking about that and they're following. And then Claudius expels the Jews from Rome. Uh, they're gone for a little over a decade. Uh, and during that time, they solidify in their beliefs. They, they go back to who are we and where did we come from and what do we really think. They become much more Jewish in their Jewishness in that 10-year period. Uh, while uh, the Greeks in the church continue to feel highly liberated and celebrating the freedom in Christ and being very progressive. And so then after 10 years, 13 years, they all come back together. And this clash, this cultural clash, which is has ethnic implications, but it also has just perspectives of very different people, uh, uh, occasions the writing of the letter. Paul writes the letter to say, why can't we all just get along? And so that's what's happening in the process. And, but it's not just what's going on in the Roman church, it's what's going on in the city of Rome. So, so in the first century, the city of Rome, in a 10 square mile area, has a million citizens. A million citizens. Now we think, you know, population density is new to our culture, but it isn't. And so for a moment, as you think about probably the most cosmopolitan city uh, in the first century in the world, Rome, uh, sits on the seven hills, you know, there it is, 10 square miles, a million people representing all the populations of the world, all the ethnicities of the world. Uh, it is a diverse place. And it's highly enlightened. It's a highly enlightened culture. So they're celebrating and talking about these, these vivid concepts uh, democracy, the right of the individual, civil rights. Is a, it's a hot topic in the first century in Rome. It's a happening thing. Uh, trial by jury is a new idea. You know, trial by jury of your peers, new ideas. All of these incredible ideas that are coming out of Rome. But the problem is they're only for Roman citizens. So all of these highly idealistic ideas about humanity and compassion and how it works in a culture that is really serving only a very small strata. And then underneath that, supporting systems of slavery, supporting systems of disenfranchised, you know, you want to talk about a gender gap? Uh, Rome was not well known for women's rights. Uh, we're aware of that, right? Everybody still with me? I can hear you. See you, sort of. And so we have all that stuff going on, that diversity that's going on, that unrest that's sort of under the surface in the city of Rome. And so Paul is writing not only to the issues that are facing the church, but he's writing to this greater culture and what it means and what it looks like as people are converted into Christianity and coming out of these systems. What is that all about and what does it look like? And so he writes very vividly, especially as he comes to the end of the letter. And a couple of weeks ago, I... I said to you, uh, we talked about the opening of chapter 14 in which he talks about 
uh, the fact that we're not supposed to compare ourselves to each other, and we're not supposed to turn our beliefs into dogma. Uh, dogma is the belief that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Dogmatic, to be dogmatic. And so he addresses that sort of in the opening. And then as he progresses through this argument, which, by the way, it's always fun to go back and read chapter 14. It's just a good, you know, sort of check and balance of where we are in the world. As he continues, he becomes very explicit in verse 10. It reads this way. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. So, so Paul very specifically says, here's the deal. In the midst of all this diversity, in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, I would like you to stop looking at others and start focusing on yourself. It's a full-time job. It takes everything in you to simply ask God to help you follow along what God is asking of you. You don't really have time to be looking around. So it becomes this incredible moment of, I don't know, personal conviction. I always say I don't preach sermons that I don't need to hear. And so I've had this one for weeks. I'm really glad to give it to you now. <laughs> Let you mess with it for a while. Because I don't know about you, but that's convicting, isn't it? I'm so much more comfortable looking at other people. It's so, I mean, so, it, it's such a convenient way of shifting my responsibility. I mean, I, I can be mad at the world. I can be mad at politics. I can be mad at the socioeconomic climate. I can be mad. I can be mad about almost anything. And yet, isn't there a place when we think about this issue of our practices where we would pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because the truth is, part of what happens when I shift my focus is I feel better about myself. I mean, I feel way better when somebody else is way worse. Okay, just me. <laughs> what way are we judgmental? There's all kinds of judge, judgment that we practice. We're generationally judgmental. Older people judge younger people. We do. We do. Older people tend to believe we've figured it out. We've lived a long time. We ought to be respected for all the things we know. We don't always want to have the conversation about how we found out. It's more awkward. Just trust us, we know. Younger people judge older people. Very few of us ever drive down the street that we are not judging older people. Very few of us, even if they're not old. We believe they're driving like, like old people. <laughs> Amen? Amen? It's just seamless for us. We're not the dumb driver out there. Somebody else is, probably because they're old or because they're young and they just don't have any regard for the people around them. We judge generationally across a lot of lines. It's just a part of what we do. We judge politically. I love that the second sentence there in that second verse is, don't hold others in contempt. Well, that sums up our politics, doesn't it? 
We just hold everybody in contempt. Anybody that doesn't think like I think or feel like I feel or talk like I talk or vote like I vote, we hold them in contempt. That's, that's not a very good way to run a country, is it? I'm not really all that concerned about the politics of the country. I would be much more concerned about the condition of our hearts. And I think that's what Paul's saying. I think Paul's saying, listen, <laughs> there's so many layers of mess going on right now. So why don't you get your eyes off your neighbor's paper and get it right back here on the condition of your own heart? We judge politically. We judge differences. We're very good about that. I, I think the longer you live and the more you travel, the more you recognize that there are things in the world that are just different. Uh, that you don't come at things nearly... That, that for a lot of us, how we think, what we feel, what we believe to be the truth has a lot to do with where you were born. I was thinking today, if I had been born in Boston instead of Dallas, Texas, I would have a very different set of perspectives. Amen? That's such a simple thing. If I'd have been born in West Texas instead of Central Texas. All you people are like, I don't know what he's talking about. What's that about? West Texas is what you think of when you think of Texas. Tumbleweeds and desert, that's West Texas. It's a very small part of Texas, very small west. Uh, that's the, if you look at a map, that's towards the left. <laughs> it's always fascinated, you know, because <laughs> down in Texas, we all wear boots and hats. <laughs> but I'd be, I would think differently. Just, you know, if I'd have been born to different parents, I would have a whole different perspective of the truth. And that's true of all of us. If I'd been born in another country, we, we were at an event in uh, Swaziland a couple years ago. We were dedicating a building, and the assistant prime minister of the country came to the dedication of the church building, and he gave a speech. And in his speech, he was advocating for one party over the other. And one of the platforms of the party he was advocating is they were going to put an end to tribal killings. There's a hot-button topic. Imagine the folks who are going, no, we believe in that. You understand what I'm saying? That there was another party saying, well, no, tribal killings are a part of our culture. It's a part of who we are. No, we don't think it's a great idea. Well, vote for me because I think it. If you're born in another country, you have a whole set of different ideas about what you're upset about. Amen? So Paul's just saying, maybe for a lot of us, we need to center down a little bit. Stop looking at others and stop gossiping about others and stop talking about others and stop focusing on others. And I know you thought this, talk, this sermon was on forgiveness, but, but if we're going to talk about forgiveness, forgiveness is the antidote for judgment. There's this fascinating story in John chapter 8. And so I, I want you to... Just kind of stay with me right now. Because in John chapter 8, you have this story in which the Sanhedrin, you understand the Sanhedrin, people who have been hired under religious principles to be the judges of others. Do you understand what, what, what's going on here? The Sanhedrin has found a woman who's been caught in adultery and she's been brought before Jesus. These are people who are living in a theocracy. Uh, the whole government is structured around a belief in God, a very simple monotheistic Jewish belief in God. And these men have been appointed to represent God in judgment of the people. They are the court system, the Sanhedrin. 
And they have brought this woman before Jesus. They're getting paid to be judges. Everybody with me? And they bring her before Jesus and they say, This woman has been caught in adultery and under the law she, is, she deserves to be stoned to death. What do you say? And Jesus bends over and begins to write in the dirt. And then he stands and he looks at them and says, Let the person here who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends over again and he begins to write again. And one by one, they begin to leave. And the scripture makes this note, starting with the oldest first. Because <laughs> they had a lot more time to sin. I mean, isn't that logic? <laughs> they had a lot more to be accountable for. And one by one they left. And when they were all gone, Jesus turned to the woman and said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she said, There are none. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I don't know what all the implications are, but it seems to me that if we just take it at its surface level, it says these religious leaders who believe themselves to be absolutely right and appointed to be the judges of others are in no position to judge because they should look at themselves first before they look at others. Is that a fair interpretation of the scripture? Get your eyes on your own paper. Don't hold others in contempt. Now, I know somewhere we stand up for the truth. We believe in it. We, 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 you know, we are supportive of the idea that the Word of God is the guide and the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. But, you know, how many of you have spent any time in commentaries? A couple of you read one or two? Yeah, I spend a lot of time in commentaries. <laughs> if you look up a passage of Scripture in a commentary, here's what happens. There's about 20 pages that are dedicated to the arguments about how to interpret that passage of Scripture. About 20 pages saying, well, you know, some people say... <laughs> but that's impossible because... <laughs> so other people say... <laughs> and then you just got... <laughs> so I skip all that. I get over to the last paragraph that says, so... Here's what it means. I only buy commentaries by authors I like. Amen? Because what am I going to do? Buy a book about a commentator I don't agree with? No. I'm going to find one that suits me. And he's going to help me interpret scripture. And maybe there's a place for me to walk very humbly in this space. I don't know where the line is. There is a line somewhere in which we together say, yes. But somewhere in there, you and I are invited to look at ourselves first and others after that. Then Paul says, let's put no stumbling block or obstacle in front of another person. I, I think judging, critiquing, criticizing is a stumbling block. Especially when the scripture says the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. These are the fruits that grow out of a life that is nurturing a place for the spirit. And as we think about our practices, how is your doing? Listen, it is so seamless for us. I'm guessing that right now somewhere somebody's saying, you know, I know some people that need to hear this sermon. Because we so seamlessly move into this place of judgment. 
where we start to go, you know who really needs to hear this? It's usually not somebody we like. Usually somebody that's rubbing us the wrong way. Usually somebody that's forcing their opinion on us. Don't hold anybody in contempt. I tell you, don't judge each other. Everybody's going to stand before God. Maybe the whole focus becomes, I'm going to try to look, I'm going to try to do my best to think about what God is inviting me to do and he's, who He's inviting me to be. Because that's going to take up about 99.99% of my time. I do believe the culture encourages us to be judgmental. It encourages us to be judgmental because we can't really talk anymore. We don't really have conversations about controversial subjects. Have anybody tried this in your own home? No? You should. Talking is good. Mostly in our culture, we want to know, are you for it or against it? And if you say, I'm for it, then all the people against it will hold you in contempt. And if you say, I'm against it, all the people who are for it will hold it. And this happens generationally. It happens in our homes. That's one of the ongoing issues we have as parents and children. Because another generation coming behind us don't see the world the same way we see it. They see it very differently than we see it. And older people aren't supposed to hold younger people in contempt, and younger people aren't supposed to hold older people, and progressives aren't supposed to hold liberals in contempt, and liberals aren't supposed to hold progressives in contempt. We're not supposed to hold anybody in contempt. We're supposed to do our best from our own perspective, from where we came from, to be obedient to God in the context of our own lives. Amen? I told you it wasn't a nice sermon. I told you it wasn't sweet. But it matters. And the fact is, we treat issues in our culture as if they're simple, but they're not simple. They deserve a lot of conversation. They deserve a lot of fact-finding. I don't know where you find facts anymore because it seems that all of the facts are tainted in one way or another. But somehow, we've got to learn to move to this place in which we understand life's not simple, culture's not simple, issues aren't simple. They're difficult. They're complex the vision of the Bible is that each of us following after Jesus Christ become more and more in His image. We become, as Paul creates the illustration, the, as, as we sort of apply that process, you know, the, the, the waste of our life is cleared away and cleared away and cleared away until we perfectly reflect the image of God. And that's our pursuit. That's who we are. Be perfectly appropriate to talk about what we believe. Perfectly appropriate for older people to talk to the younger generation about what we believe. We believe this. We don't know. But we came up believing this. And this is how it's worked. And this is how it hasn't worked. And this is what we've learned. And this is what we're still learning. And it's okay. Perfectly appropriate for younger people to say, this is what I believe. What's not appropriate is to hold one another in contempt to say, well, we can't talk. I just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> because that is like someone standing out in their sailboat shorts, swirling their drink, and pontificating without participating. And that's not who we're called to be. The antidote for all of this judgment is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how often should we forgive? This is a big topic among the rabbis. So Jesus being a rabbi, he gets this question, how often should we forgive? Now the rabbis have said that you should forgive three times. That's a, that's a magnanimous way to do that. And so Peter says, seven times? Because Peter always likes to shine. He likes to be the perfect student. 
Should we forgive seven times? That's three plus three. I've doubled it and added one for good measure. I'm going straight to the head of the class. And Jesus said, no, I'll tell you, it should be seven times 70. And he's not saying get out a calculator and keep track. He's saying, here's an incalculable number. Just keep forgiving. And to illustrate it, he then says, let me tell you a story. There was a man who owed an unpayable debt. And Jesus uses a number that is a hyperbole. It is such an enormous number that no one could even fathom the debt. Wouldn't even know how to get into such a debt. But literally the number he gives, if you lived 20 lifetimes, you could not earn enough money to pay back what he owed. That's how much money he uses. That's the number he gives. And this is what he owed. And he came before the man to whom he owed it. And the man said, you owe me all this money. If you don't pay it, I'm going to have you thrown in prison. And the man said, I can't pay it. But if you'll give me time, I'll come up with the money. And the master had mercy on the servant. And he said to him, your debt is forgiven. And that man walked out and found a man who owed him one day's wages. And he said, you owe me one day's wages. And the man said, I can't pay it. Give me a little time. I'll pay it back. And he said, no. He had the officials come and take the man and throw him in prison until the very last penny is paid. And the folks standing around saw what happened and it made them upset. And they went back to the master and they said, I don't know if you know this, but that guy that you forgave the incalculable debt, he just had another guy thrown in prison for one day's wages. And the master has the man called forward. He said, what did you do? I showed you this great mercy. Now take him away. You wicked, evil servant, take him away. And keep him locked up until the last penny is paid. And now Jesus looks back at Peter and says, this is how forgiveness works in the eyes of your heavenly father. He has forgiven you an incalculable, unpayable debt. And there are people who have incurred debts with you, but they are so small in comparison. So why don't you just live in a spirit of forgiveness? Just live in a spirit of forgiveness. What would it be like if you and I just asked this question, why can't we all get along? Maybe a better question is, why don't we want to? What are we afraid to give up in order to get along? I get to do a lot of weddings, and sometimes I get to do weddings for older folks who've been married before, and they're deciding later in life to get married, and so they come for counseling I don't know, what do you tell people who've been married a long time and now, you know, their spouses have died or whatever and they're getting married? And I do find this to be very interesting when this happens. Because I consistently, as we sort of talk and, you know, we'll try to talk about things like, well, you know, maybe you should learn to communicate. You know. I consistently find this response from those people. Uh, no, we've just decided we're going to get along. We've decided we're going to be happy. Well, what about, no, we're not going to mess with that. No, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to argue about that. No, we're not going to act like that. No, we just, no, we've been through that. We're not doing that again. Life's too short. Nope, that's not going to happen. Nope, we're just going to be happy. We're just going to get along. That's what we're going to do. We're going to be happy. <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if we all just made such a decision? 
We're just going to get along. We're just going to put a high priority. <laughs> a few, last year, about this time, we were doing a series called Behavioral Spirituality. We were talking about the virtues and practicing virtues, and we were talking about forgiveness. And I came across a book that's uh, written by a psychologist, uh, Christian psychologist, who talks about the dance steps of forgiveness. Anybody remember that? Dance steps of forgiveness? Dance steps of forgiveness? Nobody? Good. Perfect. <laughs> and I like, this, I like the illustration of the dance steps of forgiveness because uh, have you ever watched people dance? Now, some people will do the steps of the dance. You understand what I'm saying? Like you can feel them counting and thinking and calculating what they're going to do next. Do you understand? You've seen these people? You know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. That's not dancing. That's doing the steps to the dance. And then other people, they got the music in them. You know what I'm saying? Ain't nothing going on in their head. They're just moving. They don't even know what's coming next. And you don't either. So I like this dance illustration because I find in, uh, in Christianity especially, we got a lot of Christians who are counting out the steps to the dance. I will forgive. I will be nice. I will be sweet. <laughs> I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. You understand what I'm saying? I think he wants the dance of forgiveness to be in us. He wants it to be coming out our pores. He doesn't want us to be all up in our head going, what's next? What should I do next? Well, how should I act next? Well, what should I say? He wants us to dance in this place of forgiveness. That we've received it and been filled with it and it spills out of us. The dance steps of forgiveness. Step number one, truth telling. Part of the reason we can't always find a place of forgiveness is because there is not always truth in the situations. And sometimes it's hard to forgive because people won't admit the truth. They won't admit what's happening. They won't admit what has happened. And so it's hard to get past this one. And sometimes when we're in conflict with each other, we, we have our own truth. This is what happened to me. And other people have their own truth. And that's okay. That's a part of the truth-telling. What happened to you? Oh, okay, well, this is what happened to me. Oh, okay. But truth-telling is a part of forgiveness. Talking about things is a part of forgiveness. And it matters. Dance step number two, acknowledging anger. We got to admit that something happened to us. You know, when, when things go wrong, it's okay for us to say, hey, the emotion I felt was anger. I was mad. You made me mad. You're not supposed to say it that way, by the way. Your behavior has left the conditions very good for my anger to ignite. See, See that's psychologically healthier to say. You made me mad is saying you did something and I have every right to be angry and I couldn't help it. <laughs> you made me mad. <laughs> but we have to talk about the emotions that go on and what happened to people. So we're truth-telling and we're understanding the emotional toll that it's taken, acknowledging anger. Dance step number three, concern for the other. At some point when we're in conflict with others, we have to at least step back far enough to go, I may not agree and I may be angry and I may be hurt and we may have two different versions of the truth. But this person is a child of God, and they have worth and value, and God loves them and esteems them. And if we're going to practice and dance the dance of forgiveness, there has to genuinely be a concern for other human beings. The calling of Jesus Christ on our lives 
is a call to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're supposed to actually love people. Not see them as an obstacle or a nuisance or a problem, but love them. Care about them. See them as people who have been created in the image of God. Dance step number four, recognizing, remembering, and repenting. When it comes to this issue of forgiveness, we can almost always identify the offender and the offended. And that's a power differential, and it should not be something that we gloss over. When something happens, we go, well, you know, who's the prime cause and how do we deal with it? Because if we don't establish that, then it's very hard to go back to truth-telling and owning the anger and having concern for the other. So we understand there is an offender and an offended. But somewhere in there, we also step back and we go, I might not have ever done this to someone, but I have plenty of things that I have done. If I'm the offended in this situation, it doesn't mean that I have never been the offender. And this step is simply saying, I'm going to step back, I'm going to remember, I'm going to recognize, and I'm going to repent. I may not be the offender today, but I have been the offender, and I likely will be again. And I want to own the fact that I can act out in selfish ways. And I can do things that are destructive. And I can do things that are less than honest. And I can do things that have less. I'm not perfect. It matters in the steps. Step number five, a commitment to change. It's really hard to practice forgiveness if we're going to keep doing the same things that we've always done. And so this part is that we're all going to change. 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 I can't tell you how often that I deal with people in conflict, and the truth is, it's all, I don't know that I have ever in 35 years of ministry ever walked out of a room and said, it was 100% this person's fault and 0% this person's fault, ever. Now, sometimes I could go, well, it was 98%. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it's you, you know. But here's the reality. In conflict, it's almost always all of us. Both of us. It's almost always that there's some to go around. And the commitment to change reflects on all the sides. We're all going to get better. And what are we scared of? Why can't we all just get along? Why don't we want to? Why don't we look at each other and go, well, you change, I'll change, we'll evolve. We don't have time for this. Why don't we just get along? Why don't we just enjoy it? Why don't we just laugh? Why don't we move on? Let's all commit to change. Let's all get better. Let's all grow up. Let's all mature. Don't you think that's what Paul is appealing to? Don't you think that's what he's saying? This is what it means for us to move through this process. And finally, dance step number six, hope for the future. It's just a simple thing that says this. Maybe in this current situation, we can't find our way clear to work it all out. But let's step back and at least say this. I have hope that someday we'll get along. And if I can't say that, if you've offended me in such a way and, and the damage is so deep, at least I would want to say this. I have hope that at some point conflict goes away. Not just in our relationship, but in life in general. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a place where there was no more conflict, where there was no more sort of not getting along, where we just sort of lived in this peaceful place? I mean... I know it's not going to happen, but I can like it. I can wish for it. I can hope for it. 
I can hope for it in my home. I can hope for it with my children. I can hope for it in their homes and with their children and grandchildren. I can hope for that kind of place. And forgiveness is the antidote for judgment. And so this morning, I I just want to say, I don't know what at all. I know we're supposed to stand up for the truth. I know we are the bearers of the image of Jesus Christ. But it seems to me that in a very simple way, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine in such a way that they see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. I don't see anywhere in that that it says... Let your light shine in such a way that you pass judgment on everybody around you so they'll be convicted and they'll change and they'll become more and more like you. It doesn't say that. It says you focus and live the image of God and let other people observe how you focus and live the image of God. And that becomes an infectious reality in which they see and they give praise to our Father in heaven. Am I I misinterpreting it? If I were to ask you this question, what amount of your time is spent practicing, practicing forgiveness versus what amount of time are you practicing judgment in some form? And if all we did in this week is we went out and we said, I'm just going to at least keep track. I'm going to keep track every time I'm the guy in the sailboat shorts offering up an opinion that nobody asked for and nobody wants. And is largely irrelevant and insensitive to the situation I'm in. If I just kept track, that would be huge. And if every time I felt judgment, I said, I'm going to instead practice forgiveness. I'm just going to lay a layer of forgiveness over that. I'm going to do it again and again because God has lavished his grace and forgiveness on me. And I'm going to lavish that grace and forgiveness on others. I've read it every week. I want to do it one more time. The desperate need today... It's not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You've become weary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then, you've caught glimpses, hints of something more than you've known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. The disciplines allow us a place to, to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that's poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where He can bless us. In this regard, it would be proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. It is grace because it is free. It is discipline because there is something for us to do. How is your doing? God, would you help us? As we close this service and we search our own hearts and we think about the path of judgment and forgiveness and we celebrate the reality of how you lavish your grace on us, we just invite you to give us an opportunity to respond to your word. Even as our prayer counselors move into place, and maybe there are some that want to seek out a place to pray, maybe the response comes as we sing this closing version of amazing grace maybe it's seeking out a pastor maybe it's an email or a phone call later in the day but whatever it is God we're inviting you to remind us and speak to us individually about how we find our way in the practice of forgiveness lead us speak into our lives speak into our homes and into our families and And I pray that you would just not allow us to be the same. We seek you. 
And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.